Welcome to Reside by Sotheby's International Realty. I'm Eric Weinbrecht, your host and guide as we dive into the pages of Reside magazine to discover more about the incredible people, places, and brands featured within. Please be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to at Sotheby's Realty on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to experience incredible homes and stories from around the world. Without further delay, let's get started. The 57th Annual New York Film Festival just wrapped in the Big Apple. Hosted by Film at Lincoln Center, 29 films screened on the main stage alone, showcasing works from 17 different countries and from notable artists like Martin Scorsese, Edward Norton, and Noah Baumbach. Joining me today to talk about the festival is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director of Film at the Lincoln Center and co-founder of IndieWire. Hey, Eugene, thank you for coming, coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. And and just on cue, right there, as as you warned us before we started rolling, there's the sounds of New York City from the the streets below, right? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> you can hear you can hear New York City life just outside my window here. Um, I'm as I'm speaking to you. I'm sitting uh, in the Film at Lincoln Center offices on the Lincoln Center campus uh, on the Upper West Side. So before we we dive into uh, this year's event. Can you know? We, we know the New York Film Festival is among the world's most renowned. Um, can you tell me a little bit about its history? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, and what's interesting about it is that the New York Film Festival uh, itself, the history of the New York Film Festival, kind of predates. Uh, the history of film at Lincoln Center, the organization that produces it. And it actually goes back to the very beginning of Lincoln Center and the creation of Lincoln Center. So for those who are listening who um, may not be in New York or maybe they haven't been familiar with Lincoln Center, Lincoln Center is an arts campus on the Upper West Side of New York that is, and when it was founded in the 60s, and it is still today, um, it was created as a as a hub, a creative hub, a cultural hub for New York and for the world. So when the founders of Lincoln Center in the late 50s came up with this idea of of celebrating all of the art forms of of the world in one creative hub, this was. So this was a unique and kind of revolutionary concept for the time. And so when Lincoln Center opened in the early 60s, it, it opened with um, the Metropolitan Opera and the ballet and the Philharmonic. And many of these different uh, cultural institutions of the city had homes in other parts of the city. And the idea was to bring all these art forms together to one place. And this was a it's something we see a lot in cities around the world today, but but if people think back to the late fifties, early sixties, this wasn't the case at that time. So it was a it was a big experiment. And alongside all of those art forms, there was a movement in the early sixties to include motion pictures, to include film. The idea that film is this um, art form in and of itself that also showcases and celebrates a bunch of other art forms. Movies are visual, movies are sound, uh, movies are creative in the way that they're staged and in the costumes and in so many different other aspects, right? So there's a whole bunch of art forms happening within this one art form. And the argument that the founders of 
the New York Film Festival made was that film itself was a unique art form that should be um, looked at, celebrated, and engaged with these other art forms on the campus of Lincoln Center. So the founders of Lincoln Center and the founders of the New York Film Festival basically decided to to give it a shot, to um, to create an annual event in the fall that would celebrate and showcase a handful of films from all around the world that exemplified the kind of um, the kind of best that the art form had to to offer. It's interesting when you when you frame it that way because you know film in terms of of the other art forms that are are, are celebrated and and um, and enjoyed you know at the Lincoln Center. Um, they really are the kind of new kid on the block, right? You know, it, but but they are at the same time encompassing all of the other arts that have been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it, it's it's interesting to think about it that way. That like the decision to come to hosting an event like this was really, hey, wait, you know, don't look at film this way. Look at film as an amalgam of all of these other art forms. Yeah, and again, I think that was a that was a revolutionary is a strong word so i don't want to i don't want to overstate it but it, but it was a disruptive notion to um to look at film in this context because um when the festival was founded and it was founded by by richard roud and amos vogel uh in the early 60s and richard roud was the guy who over in the uk was running the london film festival and amos vogel was um was a cinephile in New York who was who was basically showing you know cool movies and and kind of interesting um, interesting short films and alternative films downtown you know, in New York City and these two kind of titans of emerging cinephilia at the time in the late fifties early sixties come together to create this this festival for New York and festivals certainly existed in this country before the New York Film Festival. The idea of the festival being this kind of just like gathering place, this kind of celebration, this kind of concentrated uh, gathering gathering point for aficionados of whatever art form we're talking about, in this case film. Um, but they they didn't uh, they weren't as as prominent as they are today. So so at 57 years old, the New York Film Festival is one of the oldest film festivals in this country. Uh, and and to your point, it it was this um, kind of special um, special moment, special place, and special way to to celebrate um, the art form that that is and and was at that time cinema, which was which was looking all over the world to find what was happening in movies um, in every part of the in every part of the globe um, and bringing that to New York. So the the film festival obviously has has grown quite substantially over over 57, uh, 57 years of it. Um, roughly how many people attended the uh, the event this year? Um, there's about 65 to 70,000 people who attend the festival, most of them New Yorkers, and some of those numbers might still be a little bit rough. We're still uh, – the festival just ended uh, about a week to 10 days ago, and so we're still, uh, we're still doing some, uh, some you know, post-festival accounting. But, but imagine an event that, that serves about 65 to 70,000 people over the course of a 17-day festival, which is, which is lengthy. You know, it, it's, it comprises and, and fills three full weekends at at uh, at Lincoln Center here at here at here in New York City. 
So a, an event for for that amount of people, you know, showing the amount of films that you show, representing the countries, what what really goes into the organization of something like this? Like, how does the film selection work? Sure. So um, just to kind of um, a, a way to answer your question would be to sort of give you and to give uh uh, listeners an opportunity to understand the kind of scope. So um, the festival is organized into a bunch of different sections or categories, and there's essentially uh, nine or 10 of those. There's a main slate that you referred to, and there's 29 films that play in that main slate. And that's kind of like the center. That's the the kind of, kind of center, central um, kind of, place of the festival and that's really a cross-section of movies from all around the world some are uh you know uh some are in uh uh they're all a feature length but some have played at other festivals some have won awards some have uh been acclaimed or or celebrated in their own countries um and and our our curators our programmers our our our, our committee of 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 uh folks who select the movies are traveling all around the world to other festivals and to other places to find, to just kind of find that, that those 29 to 30 films that kind of represent something unique about what's happening in film today. Um, and that's kind of the hub of the festival, the heart of the festival, maybe is a better word for it. But around that, um, that main section, the main slate, we have a section called Spotlight on Documentary. It's about a dozen new documentaries from around the world. Um, a select a section called Projections, which is more um, more adventurous. Uh, what some might have called in the old days avant-garde films, a little more experimental, um, something a little bit different. Uh, short films programmed into a bunch of different categories and sections, including a, a program of films um, that are by New York filmmakers, New York short films. A retrospective, looking back at something from the history of cinema, a theme, a concept. This year, looking at a hundred years of the American Society of Cinematographers, so looking at looking at the history of cinematography on screen. Um, a revival section that that picks films from the past and kind of reintroduces them, uh, films that have been restored, maybe. Um, And then also a section called Convergence that looks forward, looks ahead. How is cinema and storytelling changing? Um, And, and, you know, what is, how does VR, virtual reality, relate to that? Um, So all of these sections are different, for lack of a better word, kind of buckets in which our programmers and and our curators can, can put and place different uh, films that have been invited to the festival. And that process really begins at the start of the year. Um, our, our programmers travel to a bunch of different festivals. A, a bunch of us travel to, to a festival like, say, the Sundance Film Festival uh, in our own country, which is one of the most important American festivals, or maybe the most important American festival for independent cinema, independent storytelling. Um in February to the big festival in Berlin, which is the first kind of out of the gate on the new, in the new year uh, celebration of film in Europe. Anyway, there are film festivals like this all over the world, many of which um, premiere and introduce new films for consideration. So that process really begins at the beginning of the year. Um, we're making our plans now to travel to those festivals again, to start preparing for next year's 58th New York Film Festival. Um, and it's really that kind of start of the year that kind of kicks off the, the the search. It's a it's a search for the first half of the year that then kind of uh, in the in the latter part of the summer 
kind of leads to a production process that actually helps us create the actual 17-day event that takes place in the fall. I'm picturing the, um, you know, the, the the montage sequence from Raiders of the Lost Ark with like the planes and like the red lines going out in different places all over the map <laughs> <laughs> as you guys as you guys traverse and, you know, and try to discover all of these films. Are a lot of them or, or any of them submission based? Like, do, do people come to you with a film and say, hey, you know, I, I worked on this. I would love to have it screened at the film festival. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, a really good. A really good example of that is is perhaps our opening night film at this year's festival, a film that most people um, listening to this podcast may not have seen yet, but that they will uh, hear and see more about in the coming weeks. And that's Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman. So this is a movie that we've been hearing about for a long time. And our longtime festival director, Kent Jones, uh, just he just finished his tenure as our festival director and just finished his uh, his, his time with us as a festival director with this year's festival. Um, he has been good friends with Martin Scorsese for a long time. They've been close collaborators. They've worked together um, on films and on preserving uh, old films and classic films. Um, and they've even made some documentaries together. So this is a movie, if you can imagine it, where um, at some point there was a conversation at this point, quite a while ago where um Kent and Martin Scorsese talked about the possibility of showing that film, The Irishman, um, as our opening night movie. And they had that conversation. And most films uh, showing at our festivals either start as a conversation between an artist and one of our curators, one of our programmers, or to your point, someone literally hitting send on an email saying, hey, I've got a new a new documentary, a new virtual reality piece, a new short film that you guys might be interested in. I've got a new uh, restored version of a classic film that you might want uh, to consider. So that process really, again, begins uh, with the start of the year, and it it could take a lot of shapes and forms. It could be um, a conversation between one of our curators and a filmmaker, as I mentioned earlier, or it could be um, a producer um, that we've worked with in one of our other festivals, Film at Lincoln Center, the organization that presents and produces the New York Film Festival. Um, we show movies here at Lincoln Center every day of the year, and we do a bunch of other festivals throughout the year. So there might be um, a filmmaker that we had, say, in our New Directors, New Films series, which is a, a festival we do in spring for emerging filmmakers. And it's a festival we do with the Museum of Modern Art. There might be a filmmaker that we had there a couple of years ago, and, and they've got a film that maybe would be more appropriate for the New York Film Festival in the fall. So it, there's, a, there's a lot of different ways it can happen. It can happen, as you say, by people submitting or, or telling us about a new movie, or it could happen um, uh, when we travel to a festival, walk into a theater to watch a movie and uh, walk out thinking that would be great for New York. So I, I can't I can't ignore a good segue, especially especially during an interview. But I, I you know I, I I we have to talk about the Irishman. It's it's a unique it's a unique thing that a you know a, a pretty much a household name of a director is is doing, and you know it's a different approach to how you know a, a traditional film is is released. Um, you know, how do you feel that, you know, something like something like The Irishman, how is this going to impact, um, you know, the traditional theatrical release? Well, I think that what's going to happen and what's what's already happening and what will happen over the next uh, few weeks, really, with The Irishman is that audiences, different audiences will have different ways and um, unique opportunities to watch this movie. Um 
in the old days, and by old days, um, I mean like five years ago, um, <laughs> uh, one of the big studios might have financed and produced and released a movie like The Irishman, right? So we can use Martin Scorsese as a case study and say, look at any of the previous kind of big movies that he made. Or we can go way back to the late 80s and say a movie like Goodfellas, right? Mm -hmm. A movie like Goodfellas, which some people have compared to this movie um, a little bit, um, kind of gangster story that kind of looks at an epic period of time for a a group of characters. Um, In the 80s, in the 90s, a movie like that might be financed by a big studio. So Warner Brothers and Martin Scorsese team up to make this movie, to finance it, to produce it, to shoot it, and then to release it in thousands of theaters around the country at this, you know, over the course of a whole season or, or half a year. The movie is, you know, playing for three, four, six months sometimes, right? Um, the reality is, and, and what you're getting at when you ask about The Irishman, is that on the one hand, the making of the movie, the financing of the movie, and the production of the movie um, of The Irishman is actually not all that different from the way perhaps Scorsese made, and he, he might have a, an argument more specifically, but I'm saying generally, um, it's not all that different from how he makes a movie like Goodfellas. A studio with the resources commits a certain amount of resources, and he gets a cast together, makes the movie, finishes it, and then and then what happens? And that's the big question. What's different now is that rather than release that movie over the course of three, four, five, six months in movie theaters before it gets to someone's home, um, as an example of, uh, uh, to the example of a film like Goodfellas, maybe on, on VHS, right, back then, mm-hmm. um, six months later, eight months later, nine months later, um, today what's happening is those, what the industry calls windows, those those ways that an audience, the window is just way, a way an audience can see the movie. Um, those windows are a lot uh, more com- compact, compressed. So what's going to happen with The Irishman is that some people saw it at the New York Film Festival. I think we screened it um, nine times during the festival. Every single one of those screenings sold out. So a few thousand people saw it at the New York Film Festival here in New York with Martin Scorsese and with the cast there. And it was, you know, um, it was it was a, a, a wonderful way to experience the opening of this, this celebration of film, this festival. Um, the movie is opening in theaters very soon and it will have a theatrical release just like any other movie, just like Goodfellas did back in the day. Um, but what's different and to your to your your point and to your question is that um that window of time in which people will be able to see it in the theater will probably be much shorter. And in New York, they're opening the Irishman at a Broadway, a Broadway house. They're retrofitting a Broadway um, theater to be a movie theater. And they're going to have an event where every night you can go and watch the Irishman on a movie theater inside a Broadway theater. Other parts of the country, it'll play in um, movie theaters or art houses or special special places um, around the country in whatever community they've decided to distribute the movie. But three weeks later, a month later, it's going to be on Netflix. So that's the difference. That that kind of six or eight or nine months you might have to wait for a movie to be uh, to go from um, the big screen to your home screen was a lot longer. 
Um, now with the proliferation of Netflix and the fact that millions of people, hundreds of millions of people have access to this, to this, uh, this conduit to new content in your home, um, around the world will have access to this film, the Irishman three or four weeks after it actually played in theaters. And so that's, what's really different. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like it, it all boils down to it, these experiential things. And I, I, I did read about the uh, the the Broadway theater and, and, you know, that sounds incredible and, you know, kind of harkens back to you know, the, the golden age of cinema and, you know, like the, <laughs> that kind of experience. And then, you know, you have places like the Alamo Draft House, you know, and, mm-hmm. and their locations popping up where they're, you know, they're also offering, you know, these these kind of experiential um, events, you know, where they have, you know, menus that change to kind of fit with the movie, you know, drink specials. And, you know, they have these um, these unique uh, trailers and, and and shorts that run before the film while you're getting comfortable. And, and they kind of make it like a, a plus up. It's not just going to, you know, a, a, a chain theater and, you know, I really kind of respect um, the way that that's going because I feel like it, it should be an event, especially for something that's that's so cinematic like this, and you know, and has so much history. And you know, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting take, and I'm really curious to see um, you know where other creators are going to go with it. Well, I think you're you're bringing up a really important point, and I think I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the example of Alamo Drafthouse because they're just they're a really exciting. Um, uh, mini chain um, of of movie theaters all around the country, and these kind of special movie theaters where, like you said, you can have drinks, you can order food. There's a, it's really fun, right? It's just fun walking in there. Um, I think I think you're you're getting to a broader point that that is something we talk about talk about a lot here at at Film at Lincoln Center and at the New York Film Festival, and that is. Um, at a time when when so many movies are available to us in our home through uh, Netflix or through some of these new um, services that are coming soon, like like Disney Plus or Apple Plus or you know Hulu, which already exists. And there's so many different there's so many different uh, pipelines to get cool content into our homes, right? Whether it's movies or or a TV series or whatever it might be, um, or you know one off uh, programming or sports programming, whatever it might be. The experience of actually getting off the couch and walking out of our home, you know, front door and going to a movie theater kind of needs to be um, special. Or if it doesn't need to be, it kind of wants to be. You want to kind of make the experience unique. The experience of watching certain things can be can be one experience at home with our family or our friends sitting on the couch with food and drinks and, and whatever. Um, or it can be something else going out into the world with a group of people in a, in a, in a more traditional cinema, but, but with, you know, drinks either before, during, or after the movie and, and kind of like a a fun experience. That's not just about the the film, which is part of it, but it's about the whole experience of the evening and the food you have and the drinks and the conversation you get to have before and after the movie. Um, And I think that's what, that's the case. And that's the argument that a lot of art house theaters and a lot of art house theater owners, whether it's Alamo, whether it's um, the Metrograph, which is a cool movie theater downtown in New York, um, or, you know, film at Lincoln Center here where I work, um, is we're trying to kind of do something different and and tell people that, yeah, you can certainly watch a movie anytime you want, any, any way you want at home or on your device, um, you know, on the go. But we can also do something together as a community 
in a, in a theater with uh, and make it a fun experience, uh, either at a festival or any time of the week, you know, in one of our theaters. So I think you're hitting on something really important, which is this. There, there's just so many more di- different ways to watch and, and, and experience movies today. So speaking of, of really cool content and, you know, and, and surprising content and, you know, building this community and especially with the festival, you know, there were a lot, obviously, as, as we mentioned, you know, there's a ton of buzz about the Irishman and about uh, Marriage Story and Motherless Brooklyn. Um, you know, they, they have some really big names, you know, either in the film or, you know, behind the camera. But what was one of like the big surprise or like under the radar films that was screened during the festival? The first one that came to mind when you asked that, when you just said it just now, um, is a film that might not have been under the radar for people who are kind of cinephiles or who sort of follow kind of closely the the, the film world. Um, but uh, but it's a discovery for a lot of people right now. And that's a film. Um, it's from South Korea. And it's, it's a film by a director named Bong Joon-ho. And he made a movie called Parasite. I was hoping you were going to say this movie. <laughs> it's it's um, it's one of those movies that you don't want to know too much about going into it, but it's a movie that you absolutely should see um, with an audience, or it'd be really fun to watch with an audience in a movie theater. It's playing right now, and it's a movie that, um, as I mentioned, may not be totally unknown to some people because. It premiered. It's an example of a movie that premiered at another festival. That was the Cannes Film Festival. Um, the world's most important film festival takes place in the spring in the south of France, in the lovely, beautiful coastal coastal uh, venue in the south of France. And um, it's like the kind of starting point for a lot of higher profile um, international films. And so this film was the grand prize winner. The Palme d'Or is the is the coveted top prize of this festival. This is the film that won the best the best picture of this festival of the world's most important film festival. Um, and so we invited it to screen. It played here at the festival. The director was here and did um, Q and A's and did a special director's dialogue talking about movies that inspire him. And it just became one of the sensations of this year's festival. And it's a movie that I think audiences are going to be hearing a lot about for the next few months. It's just opened. And, and actually our, 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 our complex, our film center, our Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center here at Lincoln Center um, is one of the places, and our Walter Reed Theater um, are one of the places where the film has opened theatrically after the festival. So it's playing here on the Upper West Side in our theaters. It's playing in other parts of the city as well. And so audiences over the past uh, week and a half or so have been discovering this movie. And it's been selling out showings um, when it opened uh, on the first weekend, uh, famously at one of the other theaters it also opened at. It was very, very successful here. One of the theaters downtown, every single showing the entire weekend was sold out. Uh, huge lines and huge crowds are, are are still going to this movie right now. And so it's it's a movie that folks are are really, if they didn't hear about it from the Con Festival or they didn't see it at the New York Film Festival or other festivals this fall, it's kind of now it's getting kind of a more um, a wider a wider uh, appeal and a wider um, array of attention. And um, I think it's a film also that uh, as we look ahead to the end of the year, and we start thinking about like awards and Oscars and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a film that you're going to hear talked about in the conversation of kind of the best of the year and maybe even some of the uh, maybe even a film that's going to win some awards. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I, I think I actually just saw a, a commercial for it, you know, touting the the 100 percent on, on Rotten Tomatoes and the, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the accolades that it's getting. So, yeah, I 
I'm very excited to see it. It is it is very high on my not even very high on my list. It's actually number one on my list. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping to get out this week to see it. Well, it's not always it's not always the film to your point about Rotten Tomatoes. It's not always the film that that has the critical support that always necessarily connects with audiences. But this is one of those kind of perfect storms where the film got a lot of attention in its kind of festival introduction back in the spring. And now it's, it's um, coming out in theaters and it's got a hundred percent of, you know, favorability on Rotten Tomatoes. And, and, and at the same time, audiences are super high on it. So um, there's a, there's a, it's justified to be on your, on the top of your list. So you you um you mentioned a couple films um bef- before we wrap it up I just have to ask you what what was your favorite film of the festival My favorite is um for those who know me well probably not surprising because it's actually um one of my favorite or I guess my favorite director it's 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 great when your favorite director also makes a great movie so I can not only say that Pedro Almodovar the Spanish director is my favorite filmmaker but he's made uh probably what will end up being at the very top of my list of one of the best, or if not the best movie of the year, it's a movie called pain and glory. Um, it's also playing in theaters, uh, in New York and in certain, uh, select markets. Now it'll, it'll continue to expand, uh, into the fall. Um, it's a movie that stars Antonio Banderas, uh, an actor that, that Pedro Almodovar, this Spanish director actually discovered. He discovered Antonio Banderas, um, when they were both much younger at the beginning of their careers, and they they've collaborated numerous times over the course of their uh, kind of thirty years or so working together. But this this new film kind of uh, reunites them with a, in a movie that kind of looks back at um, kind of the life and career of this Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. And so Antonio Banderas is playing in the movie a kind of version of uh, a character kind of based on the life and the kind of look and the, the world of this Spanish director, Almodovar. So it's a, it's both uh, funny and, and touching, but it's also kind of heavy and dramatic. This, this, this artist looking back at a time at kind of the, the decades of his life and what's changed. Um, it's, it's a truly wonderful movie. It's, it's a, it's going to be again, one of those films that, that people will still be talking about, I think, a few months from now when when all the various uh, award nominations come out and people put together their kind of best of the best of the year lists. So I think that's that was my personal favorite. Um, but I think it's it's just, you know, uh, it, it, was, it was a movie that kind of just like just leapt off the screen for me and it was really exciting. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to and to share everything that's going on, um, you know, with the New York Film Festival. Is there anything coming up at the Lincoln Center that you'd like anybody, anybody to know about? Yeah, one of the things uh, and thank you, Eric, for having me. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about this year's festival with you and with your and to share some information and background with your listeners. Um, you know, one of the things we're super excited about right now um, here at Lincoln Center is is an upcoming retrospective. We do lots of retrospectives throughout the year, retrospective being kind of a look back at a particular uh, film or filmmaker or group of films. In this case, we're really dedicating our entire kind of fall season to an artist who who we also dedicated this year's festival to. And her name is Agnes Varda. Uh, She was a uh, French filmmaker who just recently passed away. Earlier this year, she passed away just a month after premiering her final film at the Berlin Film Festival, this film that looks back at her whole career. She's been working in France um, 
for decades, since the late 50s. She was one of the most acclaimed filmmakers uh, of the kind of new wave of French cinema that, that kind of burst out of France in the, in the 60s. Um, her work was kind of marginalized and not really celebrated in her in, at the time of the 60s in the same way that some of the uh, male French auteurs were celebrated. But in the, in the years since, in the decades since, uh, she has continued to work. She had, again, a film that just she just premiered in, in, earlier this year. Um, she was uh, uh, nominated for an Oscar for her previous film not that long ago, just a couple of years ago. And so later this fall, we're going to look at um, the entire um, body of work of this of this French director, Agnès Varda, in a retrospective. It's be the most contra- the compre- most comprehensive survey of uh, her films ever. And it will start in December, uh, late December here at Lincoln Center and continue screening films through early January. But what's really exciting and for folks listening, what's really exciting about this is they will be able to see these films in other cities as well. This retrospective will be touring the country and they will have a chance to experience some of the, the great work by this French filmmaker. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you once again for uh, for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the world's more under-the-radar destinations, the Principality of Andorra, is a striking and secreted location, nestled in the mountains. Recently, Andorra Sotheby's International Realty hosted an event featuring the Picasso and Rothschild families, as well as representatives from the Sotheby's auction house. Here to talk to us about the affair is Angel Balanche, Director of International Sales Marketing with Andorra Sotheby's International Realty. Hi, Angel. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Uh, we're excited to have you here. Yeah, it's really appreciated. Thank you for giving us the ex- this exposure. So before we get started talking about the event, um, I mentioned in the little queue up here that that Andorra is one of the more under the radar destinations around the world. So tell us a little bit about what the real estate market is like in Andorra right now. Sure. Um we are actually benefiting from the high level of uncertainty of the uh, of the world economies and the trade tensions. Um, uh, in light of this uh, economic climate, uh, both individuals and firms think a- about an alternative. And the Principality of Andorra is one of the European countries with the lowest taxes. Uh, the country has recently changed its residence and investment laws to make it even more attractive to foreign investors. Uh, in 2017, we were uh, ranked the second most attractive fiscal country in the world for investors. Uh, thus, uh, corporate tax, income tax, and non-residential tax is 10% at the most. Uh, in fact, the volume of foreign investment has grown higher than uh, the average neighboring countries. And that is also because there is only a 5 to 6% private developable land uh, left in Andorra, similar to the Principality uh, uh, of Monaco, the demand is is great, and and this brings me, Eric, um, to to share what I would like the audience to remember about uh, about us. For individuals, the taxation framework and the residency benefits in Andorra are are so attractive. So it sounds like there's a lot of really interesting things going on in Andorra. So are where where are your buyers coming from? Are you seeing any kind of trends? Yeah, um, 
mainly Europe, because if it's it's closer, right? Uh, the Principality of Andorra has a, an extraordinary standard of living. Um, uh, it's one of the safest countries in the world with one of the lowest crime rates. It ranks it ranks second in terms of high highest life expectancy, and we rank fourth in in, in the world in health. Uh, Eighty five to ninety percent of the country is forests and green areas with three national parks and hundreds of kilometers of ski runs. Um, again, uh, our feeder markets are mainly Europe, but we are cities we're, we're receiving several clients from all over the, the world. So th- that's I, that's actually one of the things I was going to ask you about. Um, when I was doing a little bit of research prior to our conversation, I saw that the the life expectancy in Andorra was one of the highest in the world. Tell tell me a little bit more about that. I, I know you mentioned you know the the forests and the you know the, the great connection with nature, but that's got to be really attractive to people coming to the region, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Principality of Andorra um, really means being able to enjoy the outdoors and the relaxed lifestyle afforded by natural landscapes. It's just a, a, an inspiring spot. So so speaking of, of inspiration and, and you know, all of the incredible things that are, that are going on in Andorra, tell me a little bit about this incredibly inspiring event that, that you guys just hosted. What, what was the actual event? Definitely. Um, so we hosted this event where we gathered with uh, authorities, uh, partners, clients, and, and, and friends. Um, to make official the ambassadors of the excellence partnership between uh, the Champagne Barons de Rothschild and ourselves, thanks to an intermediary group, um, a, a national distribution company called Pomar, and um, and also to officially inaugurate the new uh, headquarters office of Andorra Solidis International Realty. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, those are some those are some pretty big names there. Uh, you know, re- regarding the event, how, how did how did they get involved? How did this event come together? Uh, well, Eric, um, in order for me to explain the context, I must go back to 1973 when Pablo. Pablo Picasso designed a lithography for the Rothschild family. Uh, this, this design was the label of the Rothschild wine vintage of that year. So uh, we invited Richard Widmeyer Picasso, Picasso's grandchild, and the Baron de Rothschild, Julien de Beaumarchais de Rothschild, to both sign the lithography that almost 50 years ago was designed by Pablo Picasso himself. Uh, I think that that is just amazing. Yeah, it is. And and um, I saw the pictures. Thank you for sending them. I'll make sure that we, uh, along with the uh, the podcast, will share some of the um, the photos so that our audience can see. You know the, the the art and you know see some of the the people at the event. But you know the the lithography is it's it's absolutely stunning. I loved it. Yeah, there, there's actually an after movie uh, that is being processed as well that we will be sending along soon. Oh, awesome. We'll, we'll be sure to share that with the audience as well. But uh, going back to the event, um, what, what was your favorite part of it? I mean, there, I, I'm sure there's there's so many things to choose from with all the people that were involved. But what was the, the standout moment for you? Uh, well, the, the vibe was just uh, unique. It was very friendly. The guests were very selective. Uh, it was a global audience. Uh, we had uh, great panelists. Narciso Cias, the CEO of Andorra Solid International Realty, welcomed all the guests. Uh, Mikel Armengol, the CEO of Bomar, 
talked about the partnership along with uh, Julien de Beaumarchais de Rothschild and Richard Widmeyer Picasso, who also talked about the long time good relationship between both, uh, both families. Uh, Philip White, uh, very well known here, sent us a very special message uh, that we appreciated. And we had the privilege of enjoying the presence of the Wine and Spirits Director and the Impressionism and Modern Art Director from the Sotheby's Auction House from London. Um, the very next day, we enjoyed a private tour visit to the Carmen Thyssen Museum here in the Principality of Andorra, led by... Uh, Guillermo Cervera Thyssen himself, a, a representative of, of the of the family. So, Eric, it was just an amazing display, and it was great to have these personalities share uh, part of their knowledge with all of us. Yeah, the Sotheby's International Realty Brands connection with the Sotheby's Auction House, you know, it it really kind of fosters this. Um, this appreciation and this this leveraging of the art world, and when you know, when you initially spoke with me prior to the event, I, I mean, I was very, very excited. I couldn't wait to see the the end results. And, you know, I know there, there was a lot of buzz about the event. Um, I'm sure, uh, I, I'm sure Picasso's uh, grandson had some, some pretty incredible stories to tell about his grandfather too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we actually had the signature of the lithography by both uh, personalities the day prior to the to the to the event, which was last Thursday. And we had the chance to have more private and discreet conversations with them. And they shared pretty incredible uh, um, stories about their families that it was amazing to have this top profile along with um with us as guests and and we appreciate it a lot i think uh uh we're tremendously happy on how the the whole experience was was delivered so you know an, an event of this scale right you know th- this is this is a big deal you know the, the names that were the names that are mentioned here are are globally renowned names um what what does an event like this mean truly mean for the, the principality of andorra uh the, the event itself didn't uh, didn't really represent an, an impact in terms of economic or, or social it was actually close to the media um but we stepped up the game and and uh, and uh, and showed our guests the power of uniting uh different uh, brands with this uh, heritage right uh, I believe we consolidated our image as the luxury uh, lifestyle brand in the Principality of Andorra that can deliver a concierge service to top profile clients. I feel like even even with an event like this being close to the media, right, there's still going to be some some local buzz about it. You know, that the fact that it, it happened. Do you see an event like this making Andorra a, a more attractive place to host events for for renowned artists for um you know for for celebrities of that caliber yeah uh, definitely we we always put first the discretion and the and the priorities of, of our clients and and that's what we did at the event and i think we showed uh that we are able to to uh, to host these kind of parties with these top profiles and uh, and have no issue about it so speaking and and speaking about the future and you know the, the way that you know things are, are trending and the way that things are looking for the the region are is there anything else coming up that you're particularly excited about um yeah well eric this there is 
very soon we will be releasing a, an official uh, announcement of uh, for a new luxury development uh, designed by Rafael Lerao that we will be promoting exclusively. Um, it, it is a uh, sustainable and high-performance design residential development in a truly inspiring area in the Principality of Andorra. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm sure there's nothing more that you can tell me about it, right, at this point? <laughs> Actually, that is by now all I can say. Uh, well, it looks like we're just going to have to have you come back on and talk about it, right? <laughs> Definitely. Anytime you call me in the next month or so, I'll be available to share more information with you. Well, listen, uh, Angel, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to, you know, to show our, our audience a, a little bit more about Andorra and tell us about this incredible event. Um, like I said, I will be sure to, uh, to share some photos from the event with our audience. That way, you know, everyone can kind of get a glimpse into, uh, into what happened. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. Uh, it was great to be here. Don't forget to subscribe to the Reside by Sotheby's International Realty podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're craving more Reside, visit sotheby'srealty.com slash reside for more from this and previous issues of the magazine. Until next time. <laughs>